Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one, I am joined by Keith Burgess, Head of Management Consulting Development Curriculum for IBM Consulting EMEA. Having spent the best part of two decades as a consultant himself, Keith moved into training and over the last 10 years has helped shape and deliver the full gamut of training for IBM, from basic consulting skills all the way through to partner-level development. As someone who has played a leading role in shaping the training for thousands of consultants across the globe, both internally at IBM and externally with the Chartered Management Consulting Award, It's fair to say Keith knows what it is that you as a consultant need to focus on if you want to reach the top. And in this conversation, we go into detail on all of that. We talk about the models, the approaches, the tools that will help you accelerate your career. To give you a little bit of a taster, we discuss the key skills that consultants like you need to learn to set themselves on the path for success. 
we talk about that leap to partner and what it is that holds people back from making that jump. We discuss why the industry has developed the Chartered Management Consultant Award and how it could help you as you look to progress. And lastly, and I'd also say most importantly, we talk about work-life balance, why it is so important for consultants and how you can take some practical steps to understand where your work-life balance is at the moment and how to improve it and something that Keith gives us a fantastic model for in the interview that you're about to listen to. Whether you are just starting out in consulting, maybe you've just started your first graduate role or you're at the other end of the career ladder and you're looking to take that step up to partner, this episode is going to give you a fantastic set of practical tools, tips and advice that you can apply straight away to start making a difference to your firm, to your clients, and most importantly, to your career. With that intro done, everything said, all that's left is please enjoy today's conversation with Keith Burgess. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and uh, good to see you again. So I think we've got a load to talk about, and you know, I'll, I'll let you explain a bit more about your role and, and sort of what you've been doing with IBM for, I think, probably approaching two decades. I'll start by almost asking you about our mutual friend and one of my former podcast guests, because it's rare that I have anyone who comes on a call and says, you know, some say I think I know some of your guests, rarely do they say I think I'm related. So just for our listeners, maybe you could, you, you could sort of let that cat out of the bag, and then we can talk more about you. Yes, so Suki Thompson is my cousin, so I've known her for, well, that would give away age, wouldn't it? <laughs> a, num- a number of years. A number of years, yes. And I think you interviewed her in her oyster catcher's role, but uh, she's also got this newer business called Let's Reset, which is all about work-life balance, very, very close to my heart, but yeah, that's my cousin. Gosh, it's, I must say, it's, it makes you realize how small, I knew consulting was a small world, but I think that makes you realize how small it is. And, and to your point on, on work-life balance, I think really keen to touch on that and your own perspective actually later on today. But I think for our listeners, obviously, we've had a quick chat ahead of this and got to know each other a bit, but could you share a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Yes. I mean, you said about being in IBM, it's actually longer than 20 years, but uh, I'd say I've had three careers in my time at IBM and before that with KPMG and before that in industry. After university, I worked in industry, then I did what was very common in those days and went and did an MBA for a year. Came back not quite sure what I wanted to do, so I thought, well, I'll be a consultant, find out where I want to specialize joined KPMG, worked in supply chain and supply chain planning there for about five years, got started to travel outside the UK with work, spent a couple of years in in Italy actually implementing supply chain planning stuff. IBM was uh, really getting into that sort of area of of technology at the time, so I was headhunted into IBM. And I probably spent the first seven years, which happened to coincide with the merger with PwC Consulting, spent the first uh, seven years in supply chain, supply chain planning, that that sort of thing. And I think key to a consulting career is is to be able to reinvent yourself. And yeah, I've never actually found out what I wanted to do, so I've stayed as a consultant. And there was an opportunity at one point to move from having like a a service specialism in terms of supply chain into an industry specialism in in terms of retail. And partly 
for personal reasons, because uh, there was a big opportunity at the time with a client, Boots, who are local to where I live. So I spent a year working with Boots and, and actually getting home every night, which is quite unusual. Makes a nice change, doesn't it? Yeah, in the consulting lifestyle. Did that. And as I say, I did about another seven years in, in that area. And somewhere along the way, uh, one of my mentors, coaches, bosses, whatever you want to call them, said, Keith, you'd be really good at training. You've got a lot of experience and I'd see you as a trainer. So I started part-time delivery of the sort of training courses I'd been on. And then I was at a point where I was working over in Germany at, at DHL, oh, no, a great uh, assignment. It was one of the largest SAP implementations in the world at the time. But I was getting up at four o'clock on uh, on a Monday morning, getting home at midnight on a Thursday. I was probably at my desk in Bonn before the rest of my family had woken up in England. And there was an opportunity to move more full-time into training, which I, I really enjoyed. And they said, it's 50% travel. Can you cope with that? Well, there's personal advantages to that. And I'd be home 50% of the time. And also, when, when you are traveling to a training location, it's usually somewhere rather nicer than an IT center in the, at the back of Heathrow or something like that. So that's my career in a nutshell. Not sure if I've answered your questions. No, you, you definitely have. And you've actually taken one of my first questions, Keith, which was how you got into training, because I think it's not a step many people who've been in consulting, I know, make. And obviously, you've made a really successful career of it, as we'll, we'll sort of come on to. So I think you've answered that. And yes, I, I did similar. I mean, I ended up in marketing, but largely, I left consulting for the travel. So I know exactly what you mean in terms of, yes, those early starts, those late finishes. I never got anywhere as glamorous as Bonn. I, I had Southampton and Birmingham, which were shorter travels. But I imagine the Marriotts look exactly the same in both places. <laughs> and I think, why don't we start there? I'm really keen to to talk more about some of the things you've been doing more recently with the Chartered Management Consulting Institute. But I, I actually think, why don't we start with some of that training advice? And you've obviously been training consultants for, I think you, you said over over two decades, but quite a long time to your point on age. We won't, we won't reveal that. But I've been in IBM more than two decades. My full-time training role has been about 10 years, but I was doing it part-time before then. So I'd be really interested over that time, over that sort of decade, how has the, it's a big question, but how has the industry changed? How, how have, particularly from a training perspective, what is it that you were teaching people or being asked to teach people 10 years ago? What is it you're being asked now? And actually, how different or similar is that? I mean, I had some forewarning of these questions and I had a thought about it. And uh, what I look after are consulting skills or core skills. A lot of that, to me, doesn't change. Emotional intelligence has always been emotional intelligence, even before it was called that. So that hasn't changed so much. I mean, if I look at a different curriculum like project management, that's changed over the last 10 years because people have moved away from waterfall, big bang implementations to agile. So there's a different way. Core consulting hasn't changed so much over time. Having said that, though, COVID and lockdown has had a, a big impact. I think compared to my time at KPMG, IBM's always had this ability to work remotely and with global delivery, offshoring that, that's that's always been necessary. But with lockdown, we need to think more about how we work virtually with clients, how we work better with them virtually. And, and often the client won't know how to do that because clients and offices, they are, in general, 
less virtual. I can think of some that would be more virtual, less virtual than, than an organization, a global organization like IBM. We have to think how we build relationships virtually. All too often, I go on Zoom, WebEx, Teams meetings, and you don't have that chit-chat at the beginning uh, that you'd have walking to the meeting with the client to build that relationship. So how do we do that? Another thing that uh, our chief executive mentioned recently on a, on a global call, he said when he was a junior consultant, he'd go into a meeting with the partner, with the client, and things would go well. Some things would not go so well. And afterwards, walking away, maybe driving back to, as you say, the hotel, you'd have a discussion with, with your senior about how it went, what could have been better, what could be improved. With virtual meetings, that just doesn't happen. So it's not so much about teaching different skills. It's about considering how we do what we used to do face-to-face and how we adapt that to the virtual world. And of course, people are getting back to face-to-face, but it will never be going back to how it was before. I think really interesting point, Keith, and actually probably some really interesting areas to dive into because I, I completely agree with you in terms of, you know, I remember many uh, a meeting or project where sometimes you just go with the partners to learn and you know i remember one meeting where i can't even remember who we were meeting but i was i was basically there to carry the bags and but you got all of that chat and you just also absorb you know and you hear you know partner a speaking to partner b you you kind of learn why they had the meeting their thoughts after the meeting and there's a lot of i guess that osmosis and maybe we start there so i don't make it too big a question actually how have you either sort of for IBM as a whole or from a training perspective helped people start to overcome that? Because like you say, it, it can feel quite almost intrusive if you, you know, let's say you're on a meeting with someone and they call you up afterwards or maybe you're straight into another meeting. How are you tackling that? How do you replace some of that you know, natural osmosis? Well, I'm not saying we, we can't have that. I think what we need to do is, is realize that uh, we're missing that opportunity if we don't go back to that. On the other hand, when training went suddenly virtual, two and a half, three years ago, we had to think there are some advantages to virtual training. And one, for example, is that you can space training apart and learning a skill does take time. So spacing is very useful. But you didn't have that, let's fly everyone to a lovely location in Eastern Europe that's that's got cheap beer or whatever the attraction is. And at the bar in the evening, you can do that networking, especially if you're someone reasonably senior who might be in quite a lonely position on the client engagements you're you're working in. Maybe you've got a big team, but you're responsible for all of them. And the advantage of going away to a hotel somewhere and meeting your peers who are at the same stage in, in their career is that you can share those problems and issues that you have with others who are at the same point and network and learn how others have dealt with issues, learn from each other's strengths and and build a network of peers who will help you further in your career going forward. So that was sort of naturally done, and we didn't design it into face-to-face courses. When you design virtual training, you have to think, how can we do that? So what I do on, on, the, on the more senior level, and I say I do, we introduced it in a class I was responsible for, and it's it's become more widespread, is we might have uh, the, the the normal training session where we cover the content and learn the skills and get feedback. But we'll pick an hour, one evening during the class, no agenda, or we don't say there's an agenda, and we do some networking. And one trick we've used in that is, okay, you've come to the, the no agenda meeting, pick an object from your house that is precious to you and describe it. 
And then you get really, you start to see the people as people rather than as a consultant or a project manager or an architect. You know, you really get to see the person and, oh, You've got an interest in, in like you saw earlier, me playing music. There's often, I, I find people on my classes who've got, because we're now going into their houses, a guitar in their background or, you know, a tennis racket. And suddenly you make those network deeper relationships because you're networking not just on your career and, and what you do as a consultant, but as a person. So being intentional about that is, is, is the biggest change we've had to make. I think it's a really good point. And, and it is an interesting thing that COVID created and in a good way has stayed is that, like you say, that personal connection. You know, I'm, I am in the office today, but you're at home and you know, we've talked about your hobbies, talked about you know, your house. And I think it really does help that. And I have seen, not as many, but I have seen some people be quite intentional around what's behind them. You know, they, they've gone to Ikea, put a shelf up and put their sort of three, three things on, which I, I think for the reason you've said, actually is a, a good way to let people into your world, I guess. Sort of taking that one step further to the client side, because you mentioned sort of that relationship building with clients. If from a training perspective, how have you had to view that differently? And I guess this may or may not be an interesting point to to touch on. So you you guide me. Is obviously IBM work on large scale projects. So while it's global, there are large deployments of consultants in certain offices. So you know your client who was paying a lot of money could say, "I can see the you know fifty, a hundred, two hundred IBMers there." That obviously, I imagine, isn't happening, didn't happen during COVID, isn't happening as much now. What skills have you had to, I guess, help your team with to kind of maybe get over some of that client trepidation of, I used to be able to see the 200 heads. I now can't, you know, I can't see the 200 heads. So I, I therefore don't think they exist, the kind of Descartes argument. Like, how have you had to tackle that from a training perspective? Are you doing anything differently or guiding your consultants to do anything differently? Or actually... Is that similar to what you just described? It's kind of naturally happened over COVID. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a, a, a strong answer to that because we haven't changed our training. I mean, the the key skill of client relationship development is listening. A lot of our consultants, and certainly you know, the more more senior people that I'm developing to go to partner, they've got there because they've been problem solvers, and they see a problem and they they solve it now. There are difficulties seeing the problem virtually because you're not there on site and, and noticing it. So I think the only thing I'd say is listening skills are even more important. And the key thing as you get further in your career is moving away from being someone who immediately knows the solution to someone who can listen, understand, ask deep probing questions and, and get further into Problem which which maybe no one's ever had before, no one's ever solved before, like the pandemic. So you know, it's not going to be something you could read in a textbook. And this is what I I would do on page sixty four. It's something you're going to have to co-create with the client. And in order to do that, you have to really listen to the client because all too often I see in in role plays or real plays because we'll use real situations, a consultant will come in and say have you tried this? And of course, the immediate reaction of the client is, of course, and it didn't work. Whereas if you, if you say, what have you tried? You get the client to speak and then you can say, okay, so you've tried A, B, and C. And that gives you permission to come up with solution D or E or F. I think a great nugget of advice there, Keith. And I, I love the phrase real place. Can you just, I know it's a slight tangent, but can you, can you just bring that to life for me? Because I, I love that concept. Role play is, is really 
not ideal in training and, and it means you you learn about a case study a fake case study about a, a fake client that you'll only need for the four days of the training what i like to do is get people to bring along their own experience so um one class we've been running for a, a long time now for sort of middle of you know 10 years experience consultant let's say not not up to partner level yet but but reasonably experienced and um, they will have client opportunities that they're working on so rather than bringing in a case study that says here's a fictitious client with this fictitious opportunity we get it's a face-to-face -face class 25 people well 24 four tables of six on that table of six, they'll have six opportunities. Maybe a couple of them don't have very good opportunities at the moment, but you'll certainly have a few good quality opportunities. And they can take that real opportunity through a class. And uh, so when it comes to where you would have done a role play of a client presentation, they're doing a real play of, okay, it may not be the real client, maybe the other table team playing the client, but they're practicing presenting a real opportunity to a client. So that's what I mean by real play. I, I really like that. And just so that's where, so if I was in one of your trainings, I would bring, you know, I'm currently working on this opportunity or I've got this client in this industry and, and there you kind of describe the problem and then someone almost plays that client. Is that how it works? Yeah. So often we, we use this sort of concept of, of table teams. So you'd have uh, what we call a cabaret arrangement in the training room of four tables of six or six tables of four and anyway you've got little teams and um one team is presenting the real opportunity let's say as this case was the other team is then playing the client and providing feedback and you learn as much you know, certainly in terms of something like presentation skills you learn as much from watching others and what they do well and, and giving them feedback on that as you might do from yourself and that, that can be a team exercise it could be when we're doing client relationship skills, we use a technique called, well, a model called the Heron model, and we teach the model, and then we get them to practice one-on-one, -on -one, asking those interventions and moving away from what I was saying earlier about those authoritative, um, have you tried this, this should work, through to um, how do you feel about that, or how did the client feel when you said that? They're always relating it to a real situation, which I think really does embed the learning much better than than a fake uh, case study. No, I think it's a great point, and and I guess the other ben the, you know, the benefit for you as a trainer, but for for the trainees as well, is it is real, and therefore it's different every time, and it's not you know one of my friends on the project told me about the case study that you can ace or that eventually these you know, manufactured case studies can start to feel similar if you've done enough training courses. Whereas like you say, that that real world makes them all different, but also brings people in and gets them invested. And it makes it more relevant because we could write a case study and I've seen them all too often. Five years later, it's not the area of work that IBM's focusing on. I mean, we're now a cloud and AI focused uh, a technology company with you know a large part of our business being consulting in the areas of hybrid cloud and artificial intelligence five years ago our approach would have been what was it called mobile social artificial intelligence it was there were de various different acronyms for it and of course i've forgotten what it was but in the case study it would have all been there and if you didn't have the, the investment to keep rewriting and updating the case study so 
now we don't have to do that. We get people to bring the real one along. I think, yeah, like you say, great for cost efficiency, but more importantly, like you say, keeps you current and and also to our conversation around osmosis and learning means your colleagues who may, you know, you may have someone on a a five-year project that is more traditional, is learning from the colleague who's doing, like you say, that sort of cloud and AI. And just because you mentioned it, and I always love a good model, are are you able to elaborate on what the Heron model is? Yes, I I am, (laughs) because I've been, this is probably one of those that I've been using a long time. And there are Probably other variations of it, but the, what's at the core is 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 um, won't change, I'm sure. So John Heron is a professor at the University of Surrey. Last time I looked, he was in his 80s and he was still alive, but uh, it is a while since I've looked. So put simply, there are two types. Well, any professional has interventions with their, their client. Um, it could be an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, whatever. And there are two categories, he stated. One is authoritative where it's on your agenda so i as a doctor might say stop smoking yeah that's very much me I'm not a doctor and i'm not yeah. but is that going to be effective in simple terms because it's come from your agenda rather than the client's agenda it's not so likely to work. it might be appropriate if there's a fire you know women and children first get out get out now and huddle at the uh, crossroads on the corner yeah, that that's the appropriate time to use those uh, prescriptive interventions. But as a consultant, possibly a, a to-go live of a new system, you might use that, but using it appropriately. And actually, we do use a, a, a real play to explain this. If I can imagine that you, Mr. Client, Nick, if you're the captain of the Titanic, okay? Yep. So, um, and I've got, as I say, I can't remember what, because I'm jumping around, this is unprepared. I've got my authoritative styles, which is my agenda, and my facilitative styles, which is more on your agenda. So, start with the authoritative, and the first one is prescriptive. Nick, you're the captain of the Titanic. You should get the women and children off into the lifeboats now. That's mm. me being prescriptive. The next one, and this is, I I would say, the most common one I've seen in my years of training consultants using, which is informative. You know, they've they've come up through knowing Salesforce or SAP or cloud or marketing or supply chain. You know, they've got some experience. And Mr. Captain of the Titanic, there's an iceberg there, but you can only see see it's like huge. Well, that's only 10% of it because 90% of it's below the water. And unless you do something about it, you know, most ships that hit icebergs sink. So informative intervention there. So I'm just going to say I, I loved that, Keith. And I'm just imagining if, if the Titanic was remade with management consultants. It'd be, it'd be very, <laughs> yes. Yeah, very amusing film, but please keep going. And the next one, and this one's quite a difficult concept to get across, especially the, the term is confronting. We've tried changing the name, but but it, it still gets difficult. But the official Heron terminology is confronting. And that's not about having a fight with the client. It's more about holding a, a mirror up. You say one thing, but I notice something else. What's going on? So, uh, Mr. Captain of the Titanic, Nick, we've hit the iceberg and you say this ship is unsinkable. But we're listing at almost vertical 90 degree angle. What's going on? So you're getting the client to notice something that maybe they're in self-denial about. So I'm not saying those are wrong, but those are the sort of things that we as consultants naturally fall into as we develop our career. We're on our agenda trying to change the client. 
there's a lovely video uh, on YouTube. It's only about a minute and a half long called It's Not About the Nail. And that really demonstrates that if you just try and solve the problem, it's a picture of, it's a video of a lady with a, a nail in her forehead and her partner is trying to solve it. I don't know if you've seen it. Because the uh, consultant in this case is completely missing the point of what his wife wants to talk about because he sees this nail, which he thinks is the problem. So we often think we see the issue and maybe the client themselves doesn't even see the issue and, and you can't get to that with these prescriptive interventions. So then the other side of the coin is it's the facilitative interventions where you're helping the client to solve their, their issue. So the first of those is called catalytic, which is open-ended questions like um, what have you tried? What could you do? So, Mr. Captain of the Titanic, we've hit the iceberg and the ship's sinking. What should you do next? And then the client's going to come up with get the women and children off into the lifeboats first and uh, stop the band playing everyone to the lifeboats. And there's much more buy-in to that because the clients come up with themselves. I mean, it's not just a client you could do that with. You can do it with people that work for you. If, if they're always coming to you with problems, it's far better for them to solve the problem. My boss always calls it the difference between uh, someone coming with their, their shoe, shoelace being undone and you tying their shoelace and you teaching them to tie their own shoelace. So this sort of thing, it's it's got much more buy-in if the client has suggested it themselves. And, and then the client might say, well, what would you recommend? And you could go through different things. Another aside is often I see uh, the client saying, well, I've got a couple of options. It's A or B and don't like A because of this and I don't like B because of that. And sometimes the consultant just sticks to those A and B. Better catalytic intervention would be to say, what could option C look like? To get even more solutions coming out. So that's the catalytic style. We're getting there, going, going off of this big tangent. The next style is the cathartic style, and, the, and that's about feelings. Now, I came from a manufacturing background. The, when I worked at KPMG, I think 29 out of 30 of us were male engineers. Talking about feelings wasn't a natural thing when I started as a consultant. But noticing feelings, even if it's just, oh, your, your hands are crossed, uh, are you upset or is it just cold in the room? You know, just bringing that out on the table is really important. So it's getting a bit obscure now, this Captain of the Titanic, but Captain of the Titanic, there are passengers screaming for help. How how do you feel? Or or I, I noticed Captain of the Titanic that you're you're getting quite stressed by the fact that this ship that's supposed to be unsinkable is listing. I think the key here is not to say, how do you feel? Because that's that's a bit too obvious to say, how do you feel? Especially if you notice someone's angry or excited or upset or whatever. But labeling those emotions, getting them out on the table can be really useful in problem solving. Or even when you went live last week, how did the um, users feel about it? Oh, well, they were really stressed on Monday morning because they had to log on to a different screen. Yeah, and you get to talk about the issues underlying if you talk about feelings. It's a really quick way to get the issue on the table. I mean, I, I get a lot of pushback from some of my participants saying, well, we're not psychologists, we're not 
there to psychoanalyze our clients, but actually we are there to coach our clients. And, and that's a key type of intervention in, in coaching. There's one more, which is supportive and very simply congratulating the other party on work well done. So, Mr. Captain of the Titanic, you got the women and children off the lifeboats and well done for saving all those lives. Your name will go down in history. And that's, again, very uh, simplistic way of putting it. But, but I always say that the types of feedback, the positive feedback is about building confidence and it's really important to, to use that sixth style. So we've had the three authoritative styles, which were uh, prescriptive, do this, informative, this is the information, confronting, holding up a mirror. We've had the three facilitative styles, which were catalytic, open-ended questions, what could you do, cathartic, bringing feelings and labelling and putting them on the table, and then the supportive, which is all about that positive, encouraging feedback. So that was the model in probably 10 minutes but uh, yeah no Keith that is br- that is brilliant and this is I say this this podcast I love to share sort of anything that will help people in their consulting careers and and those are the sort of things that I know really do those models approaches and, and there's probably a lot to pick up in the model itself and and maybe I'll frame this as a question for those listening and, and you can decide how far we go in into the model because I think there's all of that when you say it out loud and with well done with the Titanic example, by the way. I'm rubbish with metaphors outside of sports, and I could never have carried anything off like that. So that would be the congratulatory feedback. Well done. Thinking about, and this is kind of, I guess, a bridge to the different levels in consulting and the skills. In terms of you know, when you're training, let's stick with relationships for now, but broaden it if you want. When you're training the different levels of, of consultants at IBM, do you find any commonalities in terms of development Point. So what I'm really reaching for here is kind of if someone's listening to this at you know, two, three years in, call it consultant, senior consultant, what's the common areas they, you know, how do they commonly present and what should they be focusing on? However, when you get to 10 years, how do they commonly present and what should they be focusing on? And, and the reason I guess I asked this, Keith, is, is partly thinking back to myself at 24, 25, and I might have just been a bad consultant. I I would have said sort of the the de facto style because as as a 25-year-old consultant, you know everything, or at least I did. To your point, informative, verging on confrontational, and if neither work, the clients are more on. And as I say, I, those are my words. I'm not going to put them in, in your mouth, but I, I'd, I'd be interested how you see those different challenges, what the different challenges are as people climb the levels. And for anyone listening at those different levels, kind of what they should be looking out for in their own approach and how they could then potentially incorporate something like the Heron model to help them improve. I mean, I think models like that, one we've just talked about, are very applicable at, at, at any level. But it's always been the case in my career in consulting that you, you come out of uh, school and you go to university, you've been at the top of your school, then you're at the bottom of the university and then you've got to move up. Then you're at the top of the university and maybe you go into industry and you're you know, to get into consulting, you're going to have to be a high performer in the industry. So you come into consulting and then you're very junior again, but you know everything. So it can be really quite difficult. And, and one of my side hustles is I work at the uh, business school at my local university at Nottingham. And what I see in the undergraduates is still quite a rare thing. It's the ability to work in a team. They might play rugby or some sport where they, they do team stuff. But still in, in academia, your results, and it, it is changing, but your results are, are largely based on individual essays and exams and casework, et cetera. So um, 
for the for the junior people, I mean, I, I listed a few in preparation, but the, the top one, I think, is the ability to work in a team. And I, I think that goes alongside emotional intelligence and knowing when to tell the client she's an idiot, <laughs> when just to share that with your, your mates at the, at the pub in the evening. The other thing is what we call, or the next thing is, is issue-based consulting. That's probably, it's not a, it's not a copyright to IBM. McKinsey use it as well. Lots, lots of consultancies use an approach. They may have a different term for it, but really what's the analytical thinking approach to, to solving a problem? And again, using a metaphor, an analogy, if you take, take your child to the doctors and the child has spots, you wouldn't expect the, the doctor just to put cream on and say, right, you can't see the spots now. That's the problem we get if we just fix the symptom rather than the underlying cause. So, so a doctor will ask all sorts of probing questions to find out that little Charlie was uh, playing with Lucy last week and Lucy had chicken pox and Charlie's temperature is now above average. Okay, he's got chicken pox. Then you use your consultancy expertise to prescribe a solution to the underlying problem. I don't think the Situ- well, the, the skill particularly changes as you move up in your career. It's just the problems are much bigger that you, you have to solve. And, and the, the key, again, about listening and, and uh, you know, delving deep into the, the situation before prescribing a solution is, is, is the technique. The last thing I noted in, in preparation um, around being a junior consultant is have a plan. Um, and I can't remember the quote exactly from someone like Winston Churchill, but um, he always said going into war without a plan wasn't much use. Whereas if you go into war with a plan, not saying we're going into war, <laughs> uh, you might throw the plan away, but the actual act of having done the planning means you you know what you're going to do next. And I've had three different careers in my time at IBM, and I was with KPMG before that. Have a plan, what you want to do, what you want to be famous for, that may change in seven years' time as the market changes, but if you don't plan at all, failure to plan is planning to fail. When you know what you want to be famous for, that should guide what you're talking about on LinkedIn, what you're reading, how are you managing your eminence, who are you networking with, that sort of thing. And then you know, this plan can be revisited as, as you develop your career. There's someone I used to use as a guest speaker on my classes. He's unfortunately moved on to another another organization, moved back into industry now. And he always used to say he didn't have a plan, but he had milestones. Every 18 months, he would be at this point, and uh, he would review it very regularly to see where he was against those milestones. And that's the sort of thing I think we could all benefit from, even if you realize the plans can change, but it's better to have a plan in the first place. No, I, I think some great advice and, and fully agree on the planning point. And I'm intrigued just because you said working in a team is a key skill. And, and you know, I think anyone listening would agree. I think what, what caught me is you said that's a rare skill, uh, particularly at the junior end. And I'd be interested, I guess, why do you think that is so rare? And how does that then manifest for those consultants? Because you know, like you say, you, you kind of, there's part of me that would have thought it's natural to come from a university rugby or football team or hockey team and i probably was talking about when i go to the university and work with undergraduates it's a mm. rare skill and that's what we would be looking for where we're recruiting you know and more and more and it's not just ibm i know pwc particularly and, and the accounting firms are bringing in people without degrees and, and actually doing apprenticeships and i know we've got 
more than 100 a year apprenticeships in, in there because we want to bring in those team workers or instill those sort of skills that a very academic degree course wouldn't bring in. The rest of university does that, but I know from my stepson, who's just about to start his third year, he's had only one face-to-face lecture in the last two years. So uh, if it wasn't for the rugby, he'd be in a very lonely place. So it's it is though um, I'm moved away from training to recruitment, but it is those team working skills that we would be looking for in in, in those people. No, I, I I feel for him. I do think this this generation of of kids that college to university age um, has been you know it's been really hard. And it was something you mentioned earlier, but your your reference around children having just had a our son's quite young and having did a, had our first trip to hospital probably about three or four months ago. He was fine, but I think your doctor analogy is is well thought. And actually, there's a as, as any new parents listening will know, there's a kind of third option, which is he's got a rash. That's perfectly normal. We'll see you again later after you've spent eight hours in A and E, which you know. Was the right thing of A and E to do, but when you when you are there at four or five in the morning, you you can feel aggrieved. So, and just again, if this doesn't lead anywhere, stop me quickly. Is you know the other core skill you mentioned is emotional intelligence, and it's something that a number of guests have highlighted. And I'm interested where you sit on the spectrum of kind of nature. It's something you're born with or not versus nurture. It's something that can be learned and. If it is the latter, how do you either train your consultants to or guide people to get better at that skill? Because to your point, and sort of what we described around the Heron model, almost implicit within that is some emotional intelligence. You know, you, you mentioned around the cathartic, you've got to be emotionally intelligent enough to know if someone's annoyed, happy, excited. So where are you on nature versus nurture? And if it's the latter, how can people build that? Now, I'm not an expert in neurodiversity. And, and my partner, who's a primary school teacher or whatever probably much better answer for you on that because she specializes in that area and there are people for whom you know like dyslexia it's it's more difficult to read people's emotions just as, as dyslexic people find it more difficult to read however emotional intelligence unlike iq is something i firmly believe can be developed learned can't be learned from reading a book you know it's not like creating a spreadsheet. It's something that takes practice and getting feedback. And if you go back to, gosh, I was just thinking back to when I was at university and uh, psychology, I learned they said um, IQ tests measure how good you are at doing IQ tests, which I think is quite true. It's it's very difficult to bottle up something and here's a bottle of emotional intelligence, but practice uh, definitely can improve. And Daniel Goleman, who came up with the term emotional intelligence, um, did a lovely four-box model. As a consultant, I love four-box models. Self-awareness is the first thing, knowing what your own emotions are. And that's something you can you can really learn. And uh, I've had coaching on it from people more senior than me. Uh, realizing when your client is frustrating you and, and noticing how you're reacting. And without knowing that, how can you control it? which is the second box, which is the self-management. And then social awareness, recognizing, as we said, with the cathartic style, how others are feeling, how how they're reacting. When you're making a a proposal or a presentation to a client, reading the room, being aware of how things are landing. And then the the, the fourth box would then be the relationship management as, as a result of that. 
and recognizing and managing the emotions in the room. So it, it, it's been written about. There's loads you can read about it. Uh, Goldman's written several books. That I think the one I use the most is, I think it's called The New Leaders, uh, where he talks about six different styles of uh I can't say situational leadership because that's copyright Ken Blanchard, but adapting your leadership style to uh, the emotions in the room at the time. There's a lot to read there, but the only way to develop emotional intelligence really is to know the model, go and practice, get feedback. I've probably gone way off the topic of your question because emotional intelligence is a key area for me. No, Keith, I think you've you've absolutely nailed it. And and again, not only do I like models, I like books. So I think having, you know, the book from the person who created it and to your point, those different styles also gives people a structure you can work through. And it, it sounds a little obvious now you've said it, but actually it's really important to kind of know thyself of you need to start with your own emotions, your own thoughts, and, and then you can start to recognize those in other people. But I think your point that you can learn this is really important because anything in life starts with belief. If you, I can't remember who who this is from, and you know, it might be your Churchill or someone else. To kind of believe you can or believe you can't, you're you know you're right. Do you, do you know who who I've stolen? No, from, I right? don't know that, but it does sound very close to sort of growth mindset. But I like that. Yeah, you believe you can or believe you can't, you'll be right. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it, exactly. But no, I thought I think some really interesting points there, and actually. We've talked a lot about the kind of junior end of consultants. And I know something else that was a large part and still is, you know, you, you were global lead for the exec training and, you know, have done a lot with with partners. And I, I'd be keen to touch on on sort of that partner level a little bit. And and this might just be my own observation. It might be something you've seen. But I always think there's a, there's a fascinating, I guess, step in the career path of consultants. And it's why I, I do spend some time on it in the show to help people is, up until partner, progression is quite linear. It's, you know, you do your 18 months, two years, three years, whatever it is at your firm and, and progress as long as you hit certain milestones. But then there, there's quite a different, I guess, jump from d- director, as I'd know it, to partners, so the level below to, to a partner. And something when we were talking ahead of this, you mentioned, you know, one of the bits of advice you give partners is that what got you here won't, won't get you there. And that can be often what holds people back. So maybe we start there and I'd love to understand what that means to you in that context and and what it is you see that gets people almost a partner, but what they then need to either shed or learn to help them make that final jump. Yeah, so that phrase, what got you here, won't get you there, is probably copyright Marshall Goldsmith, a Mm -hmm. famous business coach who has a book with that title. But it it, it is so true. In our case, and in any, any big consultancy, we grow our career as experts we talked about as being problem solvers. Lots of people in in my time as a consultant grew their career on being an expert in SAP. But then we come across a problem we haven't fixed before or maybe can't be fixed and, and we get stuck. And again, it goes back to are we problem solvers or are we coaches helping our clients to solve the problems themselves and, and moving to to listening and coaching? And the other thing is that as a partner, whether it's a small consulting organization through to the McKinsey's, Deloitte's, IBM's of the world, you are responsible for an area of a business, just like a partner in a, a lawyer or accountancy firm. Uh, whereas before, you might have been responsible for projects, engagements. You might be the client partner for client X you know, with several projects. You can't expect to know all the detail of each project, each engagement that's going on in your remit. And a lot of the coaching 
I'm doing is is things like delegation. Now, I can't say to you delegate, but I use a tool developed by a former colleague of mine, uh, which I'm sure he'll be very happy for me to mention, ProReal coaching software. We use this for remote coaching and we get people to draw their world so they think through at a slower level because they're having to draw on the software. In the, particularly thinking of the delegation, this person I'm talking about that I coached, he drew the different people who worked for him and what their needs were and why they kept coming in to him saying, my shoe's undone, I need to tie my shoelace. And how he could more say, this is how you tie your shoelace. Now, don't bother me again until we've got a different problem and therefore delegate. So I'm simplifying it a lot, but that's one of those examples of what got you here won't get you there. You need to be able to operate at a, a higher level across your remit. Otherwise, you won't have time to, to do your work, but be able to deep dive in when necessary. And some of the most successful partners I've worked with, you see them doing that all the time. I think really interesting advice. And, and just before I go down a rabbit hole of delegation, is are there any other notable skill areas that you find those sort of people trying to make that jump to partner often need to develop sort of on the same level or scale as delegation? Uh, delegation is just one example. Often it's about having time to have a plan to, to manage that promotion process like a project. Another one that you might surprise you is, is the imposter phenomenon. Everyone knows it as the imposter syndrome, but my academic colleagues would tell me it's not a syndrome, it's a phenomenon. It's where we don't believe in ourself. What, why is it, why is, what's the technical difference, just out of curiosity? Well, a syndrome is something that you take a, a pill for. I, I, I don't know, but I, I just get my wrist slapped by Professor Terry Simpkin, who used to work at Nottingham University, whose research is all about um, imposter phenomenon. It's a phenomenon where we think of ourselves as not good enough. We underestimate our capabilities. And syndromes are a medical thing. Fair enough. But everyone knows it as imposter syndrome. In fact, a, a French guy that was on my training course last week said, uh, how would you translate to in English the uh, syndrome imposter? <laughs> that was nice and easy for me. <laughs> oh, I love that. And no, it's, it, that is an interesting one to hear, as, as you say. And I think something that other you know, other guests have echoed as well in a, in a positive way. We we all feel that. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're 21 or 51 or you know, however however senior you are. I think everyone has a little bit of that. I do like the delegation. I'm intrigued, and this may or may not be a useful question for people, but to the point we had talked earlier around the, the different communication styles and the Heron model, and actually. Yeah, you, you, the software sounds quite interesting, so it's useful to dive in here too. But do you ever find people, delegation is one side of a coin. I guess micromanagement potentially is the other. So to try and use your, your shoelace tying analogy, you know, my consultant likes to tie a double bow. To me, only a reef knot is acceptable. Both keep the shoe on. Sort of, does that manifest in, in that sort of that transition stage? And how do you help or how, how can people kind of think about that? I don't know if that's something that you've, you've done some training on as well. I would say, and I assume this is a common problem amongst all consultants, wherever they're working, is we often want to gold plate the solution. We want to deliver a Ferrari when the clients ask for a Ford Escort. And um, in the end, consultancies are businesses and we've got to make a profit. So, yes, it's all very well to do a double reef knot with two half hitches, but you have to be highly trained and senior to do that and actually getting a, a graduate in shoelace tying 
come along, he, he or she could do it just just as well. So yeah, I think that's that's a common problem that we try and over egg the solution and go plate it. But I wouldn't say that that's at any level, particular level in your career that that can be anywhere. And again, that that shows we're not listening to the client. Just in case of the client's listening, I'm not saying I wouldn't give you a Ferrari if that's what you asked for, but delivering what the client asks for rather than what we as an organization thinks is is best. And and maybe, okay, maybe the client has asked for the wrong thing and, and we do know better, but we need to make sure that that discussion has gone on and we've agreed that the, the better solution is the right thing rather than gold plating and delivering something that does what the client wants, but is far too expensive. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great point within there as well, Keith, and then, you know, it comes back to to our point around child in in hospital if they've got a rash and actually it's not a bad rash you know it doesn't it's not going to cause them any harm but the doctor says well you can buy this cream for you know however much money and you buy the cream and it does nothing as a, as a you know parent and in this case a client you're, you're then a bit annoyed and i think similar in your example actually if the client wants his ford escort you build him and charge him for a ferrari and he just doesn't he or she doesn't need one to you know to drive to the shops they they may well be a, a little. Yeah, they know. can't get the shopping in the boot because there's a big engine there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yes, they need something that you can put the the kids and the dog and the shopping in, and you've got them something that goes naught to sixty very fast, but nothing else. So I think you know it's, it's a very very good metaphor for this, and you can take that one away. The knots as well. I was impressed. Your your knot knowledge drastically um, out, outranks mine there. Uh, I come from a, a, a sailing family, <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've. We've covered a ton of ground, which has been really interesting around sort of particular skill sets for people. And I actually, I want to transition slightly to to something that you've been working on out, well, with IBM, but that has wider implications and, and also wider benefits for people. And this is the, the Chartered Management Consultant Qualification. And, you know, I think a lot of what we've talked about up to now highlights, you know, that there's a lot of skills in consulting and things that you need to learn, you know, it's like you said, it's it's not all spreadsheets, and it's not it's not like accounting to an extent that you need to learn, you know, the the laws of of tax. But it's there's still a lot of skills, and I'd love to, I guess, let you kind of explain where the accreditation came about, and maybe we start with simply what it is for anyone who maybe hasn't heard of it. Could you share a bit about what it is and and how it came to being and your involvement in it? It's, it's a UK wide standard. Uh, uh, well, UK, yes, UK, including. Northern Ireland. If you're in another country, there's, I'm told there's nothing to stop you applying for it. I haven't found anything similar in other countries. I'd love to know if there is, if anyone's listening elsewhere can tell me about it. Because I work for an American organization, so getting this recognized can be, have interesting politics. But um, it puts us in the UK on a par with accountants, lawyers, architects, doctors, people who do professional services. It's something that's recognized by our clients as a quality benchmark for professional management consultants. So a few years ago, when an IBM partner, Howard Tollett, was president of the Management Consulting Association, the industry body in the UK, they came up with the idea of having this qualification. And they teamed up with the Chartered Management Institute, who have a charter and therefore can offer chartered awards. And what we did as a project team, I worked with other consultancies, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Ernst & Young, British Aerospace's consulting arm, and some smaller consultancies, probably more that I, I didn't actually know who was in the room at the time, to come up with a competency, 
competency framework. One of the skills is to be able to say that. A competency framework. What do you need? We set it at the level of someone who's got about five years' experience in consulting. What do you need to prove that you are a competent management consultant? And all the larger organizations will have their own competency framework. So it's about finding a commonality. And my role on that, because I'm seen internally as the expert on consulting skills, but also the expert on the training we have, was to make sure we had training that aligned with the competency framework. That was launched It must have been just before the pandemic, because I remember when I applied myself, they were planning a face-to-face interview and they had to do it virtually and they weren't used to it now. But that was launched around then. I think, and we're talking in August 2022, I think there are about 500 chartered management consultants now in the UK. And we've got the largest number of of those. Uh, IBM's leading the way, as you'd expect with a large um, consultancy organization. Um, You have to complete a document of evidence to the MCA demonstrating that you've acquired and applied consulting skills on client projects. And there's a code of ethics you have to sign up to and all that sort of stuff. And then you'll have an interview to sort of fill the gaps for instance, one of the stipulations is that the document has to show experience in the last five years. And for some of my evidence, I, I wanted to go back further. So I kept that for the uh, interview. But at the end of that, you you get your letters after your name. So the same as other professional organizations. And you pay a subscription every every year to, to maintain it. And it's being recognized by our clients. And unusually, I, I don't know if it's unusually, but I suppose this sort of thing up, appeals to the public sector so more and more public sector clients are asking for that sort of thing so um and it's a transferable skill it's a a badge that you can take i probably shouldn't (laughs) i'm not encouraging this in any way but where you as a consultant decide to move to another consultancy you take that qualification with you and it's recognized sounds like there's a lot in there and i think to your point the you know builds on some of the things we talked about to your point, and it, it is, I think, a really positive move that as an industry, we're moving towards that accreditation because, you know, as as I know, as I'm sure you've had the same, sometimes there is both a frustration inside and outside the industry that anyone can become a, you know, consultant is just one of those words. If you're not quite sure what you do, you put consultant on it and and anyone can be one. And I'm interested, you mentioned sort of, you know, 500 people have, have taken the qualification and it's it's growing, I guess. For anyone listening who who maybe wants to or is, is thinking about it for their organization, I'd be keen to know actually how has that adoption gone and, and has there been, what are the questions you get? Has there been any pushback? Because as I say, one side, people will be saying, I love the idea. I imagine you get some people who say, I haven't needed to be accredited all this time. Why should I do it? What's the sort of reception been in, in firms like yours and, and the others that you mentioned? And actually, what advice would you give to anyone thinking of, of bringing this in in their firm? I haven't had that resistance particularly. I think it is a management consulting thing and IBM is a technology company. So I can imagine those that want a management consulting accreditation are those who've gone for it. And um, we've got a lot more uh, consultants who haven't gone for it yet. Maybe maybe there's an underlying resistance because you know, they'd rather be known for their technical capabilities. So I don't know of resistance. The 
big problem we have with any soft skills or power skills as the current terminology is. I love that, by the way, when power skills is a brilliant way to talk about it. Uh, we're, we're just developing a series of microlearning internally called Power Up because we're trying to power up on those on those soft skills. So we're always focusing on the urgent at the expense of the important. <laughs> you could even draw a four-box model as a consultant and have urgent and important and all your tasks in your to-do list, and you'll find that you're dealing with the urgent, the firefighting, the client shouting, whatever, and you're not managing your career you're not managing that application for the Chartered Management Consultant Award. You're not preparing your, your promotion panel interview that's coming up. In fact, sometimes the point of my training is to give people time to step back and think about those important things in, in their career. So the, the resistance will be natural in any organization when you've got, you know, well, I've, I've demonstrated those skills. I've done that. Why can't they just give it to me? I'm not going to fill out this 2,500-word form. I haven't got time to do that. I'm already working weekends. There will be excuses and, and time made. And one, I suppose one, one solution I've always uh, advised people to do is put some personal development time in your diary every week. If, if you don't put it in, it's never going to be there. If you put it in and you have to reschedule it or cancel it one week, well, that's fine, but at least it's there in the first place. And spend Use that time wisely to develop your career. I think a really good piece of advice, actually, Keith, and it, it strikes me, so you know, running a, a small business as I do, you often hear the phrase, work, work on your business, not in your business. And actually hearing what you're saying, I think you know, the same applies, you work on your career, not in your career. And, and to what you're saying, with, I love, by the way, that kind of put that time in, because so often personal development can feel like a nice to have and actually... Like you said, with planning, if you want to get to a certain level, you need to plan. And actually, part of that plan might be this qualification, and then you need to build the time in. But if you don't, you know, we no one's ever got to Friday at four o'clock and thought, oh, now I can do all the stuff that I, you know, I hadn't done this week. That's when you go, gosh, now I can finally go home or go see friends or family. So I think that's some great advice around just actually build it into your career, you know, work on your career, not in your career in that respect. So I want to turn to something that you, you touched on actually right at the start with Suki's new venture and something that you're really passionate about as well. And I do I do think it's a really important thing, you know, work-life balance, managing your your mental health, your your career, you know, consulting as a career is is renowned for for hard work, long hours, and, and that can lead to burnout. And you know, I know from my own sort of experience, you know, part of leaving was not wanting to go to Birmingham four days a week um, or Southampton. <laughs> well, or, I, I sympathize with you on that one. <laughs> Which is, and you know, I'm sure you do have listeners in Birmingham. Who well, are. and there is nothing, there is nothing wrong with Birmingham if that's where you've chosen to live, Keith. If you, you know, I, well, I'll tell you more later. But you know, we had a surreal situation where we chose to live in the centre of London, had a lovely flat that neither me nor my wife spent any time in, and you know, the the per night rent was uh, or mortgage was very expensive relative to how long we spent there. But I, I'd love to maybe sort of start with why you see work life balance as so important, because as I say. We've talked a lot about skills to get to partner, and you can. A lot of people can focus on that to your planning point. They can focus on right. I'll be a partner in ten, twenty, however long you know it is for them. But actually, why is work-life balance so important for you, and why have you seen it as such a critical thing for some of those people you've you've trained, you've coached, and and you know the partners you've gone on to watch at IBM sort of climb to the top? Yeah. So I I thought about this when when I was preparing for this, and I, I want to tell you a, a real story that. I, I use. There's a guy called Thomas, and probably about seven years ago, he came on a on a course that I was doing that, that was in two parts. 
he's he's moved on. He's he's uh, got a successful career with a, another organization now. But um, what we used to do, and we still do on this course, is we would do the Wheel of Life, which I can come in to explain in a moment when I finish the story, where you find out an area of your life that's perhaps out of balance, or maybe a couple of areas, and you make a commitment, a bit like New Year's resolution. You commit it to others so there are people who will keep you honest. And he decided that his... um, family life wasn't as as good as as he would have liked. He's working long hours and um, he was losing contact with his family. A very common thing I find amongst ambitious people. So what he was going to do between week one and week two, we had about six week gap, um, he was going to take his family to the cinema or the theatre at least twice, so his wife and two kids, at least twice between part one and part two. And his his way of uh, proving that he'd done that is he would bring the ticket stubs back, uh, or he would probably these days photograph them and share them on some sort of social media in some way. Anyway, that's his commitment, nice, easy commitment. And we like to make them nice and easy, something you can do as a first step. We finished on either a Wednesday or a Thursday. He went home and suddenly at the weekend, his wife had a heart attack and died. Gosh. Yeah. So that really brought home to me how, you know, you can be thinking, I've got this really great, successful career. Um, I'm earning the money for my family. But yeah, that happens. Um, And I hope I'm not making that too too trite or too lightweight. It's, It's really seriously important that you look after you and your family's life and health uh, along the way. Another way we've described it is um, when getting to partner, you have the three D's of work-life balance. You have drink, you have divorce, and you have death. And I know making it into an acronym and making some consultancy makes lightweight of it, but you do see that being a health issue through too much drink. And often the commitment I get people saying is, um, I'm going to cut down my alcoholic intake or I'm going to eat more healthy food. Um, you you have death because of poor health and bad habits and, and divorce. And what's the point of having a great career and earning all this money to support your family if you're only paying it in alimony out to, to support a, a, a string of, of ex-partners, uh, partners with a small P, personal partners rather than capital P. So... It, it is really important to me. And also, you, know, you want to bring your whole self to work. You want to be um, focused in the moment when you're at work. I, I go back to a, a travel project I was working on a while ago where people were, and this was in another country, at their desks before breakfast, having breakfast at their desk, having lunch at their desk. And um, it was a bit sort of presenteeism. They, they'd have a sandwich for the evening meal still at their desk and they weren't being efficient. They they were just because they were so stressed by the project working long hours, but the quality of the output wasn't any better. What's key to me in work-life balance is you work hard, focused, delivering quality stuff when you're at work so that you put barriers up. Might be, yeah, I don't answer my email at the weekend. I don't take my work phone with me when I'm on holiday. You know, there are times where you can focus on the other things that are important to you. I think 
a ton in there and i mean firstly a really sad story for your for your former colleague and i think like you say does bring home sometimes how short you know life and can be and you know, some of those prioritizations the, the the drink divorce death thing we we may come back to we may not it, re- it reminds me of a, a former partner who, who always used to quote and i won't name which firm their arrival of yours but i won't name them, but sort of used to throw we used to often say this sort of popular stat that the life expectancy of a partner there was something like 57 or 56 for the for the reasons you said but almost i want to come on to the bit you mentioned at the end shortly around actually how you create some of the structures to enable you to do this but i you, you mentioned that wheel of life and um you are right i did want to ask you about it because i know when we spoke before you mentioned it and and i thought it was a really interesting tool so would you be able to describe for anyone listening you know that story's probably woken them up and made them think about oh, what am i doing actually what what is that wheel of life and how can people use it to think about what's in and out of balance for their own life yes i can when we spoke before we were using a flip chart and i was able to draw it i suppose without because I, I get no uh, no royalties for this another book that i know it's in because i was checking it the other day uh, heather townsend's written a book called how to get to partner and still have a life or something very similar to that title so uh, and that is very much focused on getting to partner in a professional organization, not not just the consultancy, but the things are common and particularly the whale of life. So it's in there if you, you want to look it up or you can just Google it. It'll be on Wikipedia, I'm sure. Draw a circle on a piece of paper and segment it like an orange. So you've got, let's say, eight segments. It doesn't really matter how many segments you've got. Uh, because you're then going to fill those segments in as different categories of your life. And one of those will be your career, one will be your family, one will be health. You might have some spiritual things that are important to you. You might have some hobbies that are important to you. Did I say financial? That possibly be in there. Different segments. So I'm not prescribing. Some people who, who will teach this will say, here's the eight segments of the wheel of life. But to me, it's it's the important things in your life. So you may have 10 segments, whatever. Spend a bit of time thinking about what each segment is. Now, in the center of the circle is zero. Let's say the outside is 10. When I first learned about this, and it had the spiritual dimension, I think I'd got it from an American organization. And I thought, oh, they're, they're talking about going to church as being 10. Um, do I go to church every week as being 10? Well, that no, it's about what's important to you individually. So if the spiritual aspect of your life is where you want it to be, then it's a 10. But whatever you're doing, if uh, your financial situation is where you want it to be, then it's a 10. It may not be as great as the, uh, the managing partner for, for Europe, but then maybe you know that that's not where you want to be. I don't know. So you score yourself not to ten in each segment, and you can mark a dot in the middle of each segment. Well, wherever on the ten, and then you draw what should be a circle. And actually, I think of it as being like imagine like nails in a board and an elastic band around it, because often you find if you if you want to get that family thing improved, maybe that means your career has to take a step back for a bit. Or, yeah, there are different areas. It's about building an equilibrium and realizing, as with any of these sort of red, amber, green things, it's about balance rather than being perfect in in, in everything. So we do that as an exercise on, on one particular training course, which is my version of how to get a partner and still have a life. Yeah, it's a common tool. 
And then we say, okay, so have a look at your diagram and pick one or two areas that you want to work on over the next six weeks and and what is going to be your your action over the next six weeks and what can you actually do i'll give you an example because we were talking about the keyboards earlier and my getting back into music as part of my lockdown project but previous to that in face-to-face classes my participants said keith what are you going to do as your work-life balance thing and uh, i said okay i'm going to learn a new tune or program a new tune on my keyboards and uh, i got the participants the, the person i was keeping myself honest with she chose blue monday by new order as being the one i had to to program so if you make the resolution just to yourself it doesn't matter if you break it however if you make it to someone else there's someone else going to keep you uh, honest about it and one last thing that i think is really important is make it a positive thing what are you going to do so a great one that i remember from years ago was someone who said I'm going to take the dog for a walk with my wife at least three times a week and just generally have a chat. And that was going to fix his health issue by doing more walking and his family thing of, of connecting. So it attacked two, two areas. The worst one I saw was two guys who said, we're going to stop smoking. What's your first step? No, we're going to stop smoking. That's it. And what did they do when they got back together six weeks later? They offered each other a cigarette because they didn't want to be the one who'd, yeah. So saying you're not going to do something is not as powerful as saying what you are going to do. So much advice in there, Keith. And it it reminds me, funnily enough, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment called Atomic Habits uh, by James Clear, which is, I, I, I believe is quite a seminal text in this habit-forming area. Um, I've just, I'm just late to the party, but... Hearing a lot of what you're saying, I think, rings true there. And it's great advice for people around, like you say, make it small, make it positive. I think I'm going to ask a question in a moment anyway, but I think you, you may have already answered that around fill a space, don't create a void, because negatives are much harder. And just to confirm more for our listeners, because I think it's what you're saying, but that point around this exercise is not like forevermore. This is a, a checkpoint exercise. So you mentioned around kind of you might dial down your, your career while you need to support your family, you know, if you've had kids, for instance, at that point that this isn't for the next however long, you know, this isn't for the rest of my life, I'm going to be a seven or an eight. It's balancing, but it's it, to your point on plan earlier, it's checking in. Is that right? Yeah. So an example of that was I've been running this course to get people to partner for roughly 10 years now. And last year, there was uh, someone going up to partner who'd been on the training let's say, 10 years before. And I wouldn't expect someone who comes on the training this year to be partner next year. It's it's about, here's the training, here's some skills. And it's not me, again, prescribing the skills because they've worked out not just their work-life balance, but all their skills. Where do they want to develop and where are the gaps? And they've worked that out, spent two, three years developing it. But it was really unusual to see 10 years. So when we were practicing the... Um, the partner interviews for a promotion board, I said, look, I saw you back in 2012, 2013. Why has it taken so long to get here? And she had a, a great story. Again, there's some health things in there about having to have some cancer treatments and survival. And also at, at that time, she had young teenagers. I can't remember, and I'm not going to mention the name, whether whether she was a single parent or not, but whatever. She had some parental responsibilities that meant it wasn't the right time to go to partner then. Now her children are off at university or, or less dependent on her. 
she had the time to focus on getting to partner and being partner and have a, a roadmap for a career beyond partner, which wouldn't have been the case seven years ago. I think a brilliant story and actually just, I think, a really nice one to support anyone listening who, and I know I did at 25, thinks you, you have to make partner at you know whatever age it is or you're done for good. And that point around burnout, as we've talked about, is sort of so important. You know, it's the, the old cliche of marathon, not a sprint. And actually, you know, your colleague there is probably going to have a much more successful career long term than some, you know, if she'd pushed herself to make partner and try and juggle it or someone someone did that. And the question I was interested in in this course, and maybe there's a part two here where we just we just do the course, how to make partner course. And I may well need to ask you for an intro to Heather as well, because I think she'd be a brilliant guest for this show. But there's an obvious question and, and you've probably had this so I'll, I'll almost ask it as i was in your class and you can tell me how you answer it is you know we go through this exercise and i go well keith this is great i can see you know works massively over and family's nil because i have to work at weekends and answer emails but you know i'm on the cusp of making partner six more months a year of hard work and i'll get there i'm worried if i go and don't answer emails at weekends managing partner x is going to think ill of me and then they're not going to promote me so why don't i just work hard for another year and answer those emails, how would you almost respond to that person to help them create that freedom and that comfort? Because I know a lot of people who have that almost fear of, oh, if I'm not on the end of a phone or not on the end of an email, something bad will happen. I had a great piece of advice from um, one of our Nordic guys who, who went on, I think he's part of a slightly different career route. And he said, you know, it's it's like a, a fire hose of all these people shouting at you, wanting more of your time. I mean, the, there are some people I know in my organization get 400 emails a day. How on earth do you cope with that? And actually, sometimes that machine is there because you don't say no. A topic we haven't got onto yet, but we'll, we'll talk about. I'm sure, you talk about pre-questions were what are the common weaknesses? Well, Think about your strengths and what you want to be famous for and eminence and focus on that. And you'll find that 300 out of those 400 emails are not focused on that. And uh, Perry Holly, who's a American, was at IBM, a, a big business coach in the States, always said to me that um, when you're doing emails, you're doing someone else's work, you're not doing your own work. And I've seen people in all parts of client organizations consulting organizations who think their job is to write and respond to emails. It isn't necessarily. I have tried, I, I fail, but I've tried to think, does this email need a response or is it someone just saying, here's some information. Graham Olcott, who's got a whole business on productivity, talks about how you sort them um, and got into this deluge of, of emails, but anything, how you sort the demands on your life into what needs action now and what can be put away for an archive? Uh, what is actually someone else's action? And focus on on the important rather than just what's urgent. I think it's a great point. It reminds me of a, another book that had a big impact on me called Essentialism by Greg McEwan. I don't know if that's one you've, you've read at all. So I'd, I'd, I'd highly recommend it because it, you've in essence summarized it of is it urgent or is it important? But I think You've also, to our conversation earlier around sort of consulting skills and highlighting the issue, you know, is the issue that you have to answer emails or is it you haven't reframed and, and reviewed, do you need to? Because to your point, it's very easy and satisfying to spend five hours answering emails, feeling productive, but actually, have you done any of your work or have you done others? And I guess within that as well, most things aren't important. It's 
would the world end if some of these weren't replied to is probably a good question to ask yourself. Think about what image you're trying to project. It's okay to say no. It's also okay to turn up in your jeans and t-shirt if that's what you're doing at the weekend. And what this Jonas guy, I can't remember if I've, because I think I went off at a tangent, what he said was the machine's always asking more and more of you until you say no. And if you say no because that's the weekend I promised my wife and family we're going on holiday somewhere, then that will be respected. If you continue to say yes, you'll get more and more. I think a really, really good story to drive it home. It reminds me, one of my, my former guests, Mark Campbell, and his his advice for others was that you know, consulting is a black hole and will will consume as much as you give it. And actually, to your point, there is no problem with creating boundaries and people surprisingly often will respect them, but you need to create them. So Keith, I think you, you teed me up for it nicely. And given you mentioned it, I'm sure you've got some opinions on it. So I, I'm not going to let it lie. Is As you mentioned around the weaknesses, that you know, common weaknesses for consultants, and it was something... I'd love to get your thoughts on because you know, you've probably seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in consultants. And I won't ask you to name who is who, but what are some of those, you know, building on some of our conversation earlier around the skills people do need, actually, what are some of those weaknesses that maybe gaps people don't know about or, or things that they need to improve? And actually, what should consultants be looking out for to help themselves fix those? I love the answer on, or the question when you sent it to me on, on common weaknesses because the common weakness I see at all level of consulting is that we focus on our weaknesses. If you only ever focus on what you don't do well, you'll only ever be average. And it goes right into the area of diversity and inclusion, which is so popular at the moment. Consulting, as we said earlier, it's a team sport. Some people are great at analyzing data. They can write spreadsheets that enable you to fly a rocket into the moon, but they may not be the best at communicating. And some of the best, like I say teams, but two people, often I see it as a, a, in, in an organization like where I work. One is really good at the numbers and figures and keeping on track. They might be the chief operating officer of, of the division. And the other is great at the communication and the persuasion and the motivation and the public speaking. And there's the Herman brain dominance instrument model that, that I use to, to demonstrate that fact. But that's a simplification of, of that, that you know, some people are good at data and numbers and some are great at inspiring people and vision. And put the two together, then you'll be greater than some of your parts. However, if you get the, the person who's great at persuading and influencing and tell them they've got to sit down in a darkened room and come up with a spreadsheet, they're not going to do very well and they're not going to be very happy. So the weakness is that we focus on our weaknesses and um, focusing on your strengths. Not only you know, if you can team up with the right people, will it be great for your career? It will give you work that you actually enjoy doing. Keith, I, I think it's a brilliant point actually and you know, it puts a lot of today's conversation into perspective but it it reminds me of and I, he's a, a businessman come influencer come however you want to describe him but a, a chap called Gary Vaynerchuk who runs a big marketing agency in the US but he he does a lot of self-development content if you like and it, it strikes me actually you know, in that world he you know, makes the same point of Yes, you need your kind of, there's certain things you need to be competent at. You know, if you're a consultant, you need, you need to know how to use PowerPoint. But, you know, beyond being a, you know, being a sort of fire. Don't, don't use PowerPoint is what I always tell people. <laughs> oh, well, this is why I left consulting, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> 
But you know, to, to that point of kind of, there are certain skills you need a yeah, five out of ten. But like you said, and and actually, it's a really good, I guess, sort of warning to all of the things we've talked about of getting to the you know the six or seven out of ten in everything will just make you very average. And actually, focusing on those, you know, making sure you you haven't got too many sharp edges. But like you've said, actually focusing on those strengths and really knowing yourself you know we talked about it from an emotional intelligence perspective but actually learning what makes you great i'm interested because i've never spoken to anyone who does a role like yourself so this and you you may or may not have an answer to this question of i know when i was a consultant a junior consultant you've got competency frameworks and and those you have to meet and match and actually how do you kind of get people to balance that with excelling in their skills because again Analytic consultants, we know we've got to tick these boxes, we progress. How do you get people to see, well, it's not just about getting rid of the sharp edges, it is about excelling. Is that a partner level thing? Is that lower? So how do you get people to see that? Because it's an important point, not one that everyone makes the distinction about. Well, I think the word competence is, is key there. You've got to be competent. And that's, as you say, it's, it's about being able to you know, write a Word document report create a PowerPoint slide, maybe. Using PowerPoint judiciously is, is a whole other skill. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's being competent. And I think a competency framework says, yeah, ticks that box, ticks that box. And then there's probably something about where do you exceed? Are you an expert in the aerospace and defense industry? Are you um, absolutely uh, the, the world guru on supply chain and what's happening in Ukraine and how to fix the, the supply chain issues. You know, that, that's where it's beyond a competency framework. It's, it's where you, you excel. So, yeah, the whole thing about competency frameworks is you need to be competent. But then you need to work out when it says competency framework has an industry expertise or has a service line expertise, where is it that you're personally going to excel? No, I think it's to yes, it is, the clue is in the name, and one that we don't always appreciate is, like you say, it is to be competent as opposed to to it's not called an Excel framework or excelling as not to be distinct from the capital E. And I, I guess there's a subtlety in there, but probably a last bit, which you, you know, more just to get your thoughts on of to succeed, you don't have to be like the the man or woman above you in terms of you need to bring to your point, you need to bring value to the business, you you need to you know have the competencies, but if the person who is a partner in your practice just because they're great at Excel and, and spreadsheets doesn't mean there isn't room for someone who is great at relationships for the, for the reason you've said. Absolutely. And um, when we promote to partner, we're looking for all sorts of different skills and, and personalities. And yeah, it would be very old hat if it was still the big fat men in, in, uh, with bowler hats, even that was before my time. Oh, yeah. It's, um, my head is too big for any sort of hat, so I'm glad that that world is no longer the one we live in. But Keith, this has been fantastic, and I, I would keep going if we could, but I'm mindful we're coming up to you know, a hard stop, and I think there may well be a round two. Maybe we, we get you and Suki back to talk about well-being <laughs> together. That would be interesting, because we, we, we don't really work together, but we are, worlds have collided, as I say. We're cousins all our lives, so yeah. Well, we can we can talk about that afterwards, but I I'm, I always finish these interviews with with two questions, and I think we've we've talked about a lot of this in the interview. So so this is probably a chance for you to either summarize or to add anything that we may have missed. And the, the first one is books, as we've talked about. I'm a big fan. My listeners love books, models, you know, people who are leading the way in terms of the topics we've discussed. And I'd love to know what are the book, what is the book or the books that you give away? Let's say to the consultants you're you're training most often, and why is it? 
So I thought about this, and there are two. And one probably because I often wave it around in, in WebEx conferences like this. We use WebEx, Zoom, or, or Teams. And that is Heather Townsend's book on how to make partner and still have a life. Very appropriate in the UK for any professional services. Uh, but it's slightly UK biased, equally as uh, applicable to accountants as consultants. But it's got all the sort of things I, I would deliver in the terms of the soft skills in there in a book. I haven't given it away as much as mentioned it every time I talk to people about how to get to partner. The other one, and, and this I literally do give away because in the days of face-to-face class, I used to buy 25 of them and take them with me to Prague and, and give them. Now we have to get people to buy them themselves on the virtual class. It's called Leadership and Self-Deception by um, the Arbinger Institute. Difficult to summarize in in a few words, but we often see people we work with, our clients work for, our bosses work for us, um, the people or colleagues. We see them as vehicles to get us to a solution or maybe obstacles that are preventing us getting to a solution. We don't see them as people and we start behaving with them as if they are objects and we don't think about them communications we're having with them and how that's affecting them and actually you know is it bringing a positive climate to the situation it's almost a novel it's a story about a person starting a new position in a new organization where everyone else has has read this book and he hasn't then it gives examples so it's a really easy read people used to read it on the plane home from the class and even finished by the time they got home in a two-hour time frame so those are the two books. I think I'll give them the details. Amazing. Well, no, those are brilliant, Keith. I, I think, yes, Heather's, given how many times you've mentioned it in this interview alone, I'm going to have to get a copy and we will have to talk about, I don't know if you know her well, but I may well need to reach out to her to get her on this podcast. You could help each other, definitely. Yeah. Fantastic. I think there'd be a good conversation there. And then the, the second book, it, it sounds fascinating and, and to your summary, actually really important around everything we've talked about, the kind of it's very easy to see, be focused on yourself and not see the impact to others. And, you know, to that point around well-being and and sort of work-life balance, very often actions we have can unintentionally impact others' work-life and work-life balance and and how they feel. And if it's a short book, they're always good. So I'm intrigued by the Arbinger Institute. I've not heard of it, so I'm intrigued by them as well. So the whole concept is the outward mindset. It's really difficult for me to give it a good summary in in a short um, uh, they, there's two or three books in the series. That's the first one. It's written like a novel. It's it's a simple read. Fantastic. Well, I'll put both of the links to that as well as the other books we mentioned in the show notes so anyone listening can can go and find them. And then the final question, and this, as I say, it could be a recap. It might be sort of something to add from today. But you've got three people in front of you and, and one of them just starting out, so maybe a graduate, maybe one of your apprentices you mentioned that you're taking on. The second is someone who four or five years, they're kind of middle of the consulting grades. They've, you know, they've worked long enough to have options, but they're not the sort of senior end. And then the final one is is someone who's in your course, you know, someone who's approaching partner and wants to do it right. And, I, and the, the question quite simply is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those people? Well, if I can give um, more than one piece of advice, but give it to all of them, that's probably... Please, <laughs> please. And never answer your question in a straight way. I think Wherever you're going, if you want to think about your career, it's got to be managed like a project. Think who your stakeholders are and work out what relationship you've got with them. 
any project you work on will have a steering board. Who's the steering board for your career? It will be your your family at home or friends that you trust, as well as those stakeholders at work who may be in your organization, maybe clients, whatever. So managing your career like a project, thinking about who's on your steering board. What's the end goal? What do you want to be famous for? Maybe maybe that's a seven-year horizon, something like that. It might change. The, the, the world of consulting has changed several times in my 25 years in, in, in the business. But um, you know, knowing where you're going over those seven years and having a plan even as the example I quoted, if it's just as simple as milestones, you can review that plan, put that time in your diary every week for personal development, see where you're going on that plan, who's on your steering board, who are the stakeholders. That's the sort of advice I, I would put. I think some brilliant points, Keith, and, and you know, a great summary from today's conversation. And I think that that plan point is one that will stay with me as well, because some of these things are obvious when you hear them, but are not so obvious until you hear them. And I think that's one of them. It's very easy for me to say them. Not so easy to do, as I found out. Don't do what they say. Do as they say, not as I do. We're all all on a learning journey, Keith. I think that's the important thing. Well, this has been brilliant. It's been great to to catch up and talk more in detail about, you know, all of the models we have and and sort of the areas that people can focus on for their career. And, you know, whether it's getting competent in weaknesses, whether it's excelling in their strengths, I think there's a lot for people to take away. And the only thing to ask before we wrap up, Keith, is anyone who's listened, you know, enjoyed it, wants to find out about more about yourself, wants to get in touch, you know, where would you point them to? You know, where can they find out more? Well, I'm all over LinkedIn, both both about my work at as a consultant at IBM and and in my academic stuff as an honorary fellow at Nottingham That's University That's a good title, School. isn't it? Yes, I have to remember what it is. But no, I'm all over LinkedIn, so easy to find. There are probably other Keith Burgesses in the world. I'm sure you're, with those relevancies, you'll find it. I always say when you're searching on your own eminence, put your name and your company name in. Otherwise, you'll find someone in another country who's who's been sent to prison for 20 years who's got your name and um, come find me on linkedin and, and make contact that way happy to uh, make contact amazing keith well thank you i'll put so that we don't find the imprisoned keith burgess i will put uh i'll put a link to your profile in the show notes as well and yes as i say really enjoy that keith so thank you and enjoy all the best for the rest of your week thank you and you i hope you enjoyed today's episode of climbing consulting If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.